Hey, it's Andy. Every teen has their stuff they don't tell their parents about, not because they lack trust, but because they're trying to work it out on their own. As much as we wish we could be their go-to for everything, the truth is we can't always provide the objective guidance they need during these crucial years. That's where our partner, Bonfire Digital Wellness, comes in. Imagine your teen having a compassionate coach with years of experience as a high school counselor checking in weekly to support your teen's social, emotional, and academic growth, from fostering healthy habits to managing screen time and much more. The best part? It's all 100% online. Visit BonfireDW today and take advantage of a one-month free trial. That's BonfireDW.org slash Talking to Teens. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. We're here today with Cindy Otis talking about her book, True or False, a CIA analyst's guide to spotting fake news. Cindy spent her career working for the CIA. She's a military analyst, an intelligence briefer to the White House, and a branch chief. She's also won the Army Civilian Service Medal and the CIA's Donald Cryer Award. And she now works in cybersecurity, speaking and writing about political and national security issues for various media outlets. Her book, True or False, dives deep into the history of fake news, how long it's been around, where it came from, and what we can do about it. Really excited to speak with Cindy today about social media, politics, and influencers, and how to train your teenager to be a better consumer of information. Cindy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can you talk a little bit about where did this come from? What inspired you to write this book about fake news? Sure. So I am a former CIA officer. And when I left the agency in the middle of 2017, it was uh, a pretty interesting time for our country. It was just a couple of months after the public had started to grapple with the fact that Russia had interfered in our presidential election. And people had questions. I mean, naturally, they had questions about, you know, what was Russia doing? What was their aim? What were they, uh, you know, attempting to do? How much did they influence the election? Does Russia always do this? Are there other countries that do this? Um, how does this all work when a foreign country uses things like false information to, to influence and, and manipulate, manipulate foreign events? So I had sort of started to do a little bit of writing publicly to explain, you know, some of these things. And I just kept getting questions from people who just simply wanted to know, you know, how could they sort out the true from the false um, in their social media feeds and online. And it became clear to me that, you know, the skills that I had learned and used as a CIA analyst were really relevant to people just trying to make sense of their news feeds. So I started putting together all of those answers that, you know, people were looking for into a book and, and there it is. <laughs> 
Well, and it's more than just like simple answers about how to look at your news feed. This book, to me, provides so much perspective on, I mean, I love the first part of the book, goes totally through the history of fake news, which was fascinating to me because, I, you know, we think of it as a recent phenomenon. It's a thing that happens on social media, but no, I mean, you point out it goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh Ramses. And you walk through all these really, really interesting examples uh, all throughout history of how fake news has been used to sway popular opinion. Yeah, the historical piece was really important to me to talk about in the book because, you know, in 2016 and 2017, where most people were sort of learning about this for the first time, there was, of course, a lot of panic around it. And so I felt like it was important to show that this isn't a new issue. And while technology is certainly a game changer when you're comparing, for example, Ramses II and his use of false information to today and what we see on social media, like of course technology is a huge game changer on that front, but so many of the false narratives that people have used throughout history and the way that they've used false information, um, that's that's been the same throughout so many different important events and and time periods that, that we know about today. So the historical part, I tried to use a lot of sort of historical vignettes or um, or figures that, that are well-known today, people that most of us have probably heard about or read something about at one time or another. Yep, absolutely. And even, even going back to early presidential elections and um, thinking this is not even a new thing in terms of that uh going back to thomas jefferson and oh and benjamin franklin (laughs) yeah i mean i you know i think in the united states at least sort of for us we think of of politicians as um like we're always a little bit suspicious of politicians culturally Um, agenda yeah they have an agenda like mudslinging is sort of normal like we just sort of expect politicians to to say sort of untrue things. Um, and it does go all the way back to, you know, the founders sure. who many of them either, you know, invested in or ran or financially supported different newspapers as a way to have, you know, favorable articles written about them and unfavorable articles written about their political rivals. Smart. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's smart. It's terrible, but it's smart. Um, <laughs> I think we've always sort of had this like deep-seated mistrust and in politicians, but I think, you know, when we think about sort of modern day political elections, you know, the idea of politicians using false information to, um, to win votes is certainly nothing new. It's just, again, that, that technology piece that is the, that is the difference. I love this, uh, phrase that you have in here, I don't know how to say it, but there's actually um, a word that the Nazis used to talk about foreign newspapers or reporters that were saying something that was critical of the Nazis, and it, it translates to lying press. So it's almost like a precursor of the word for the fake news, or um, that's what we're calling it now, but um, there have actually been other terms for it even in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because um, fake news as a term in the English language has certainly been distorted in recent years um, by not just American politicians, but political leaders around the world, even who have used it to target, you know, legitimate press and press freedoms in their countries. And even that is not new either. And, and, and that was sort of the point of, of talking about 
the Nazi party and its its war against legitimate press and press freedoms in the in in Germany as a way to you know hide the truth of their actions to villainize marginalized communities in their country as a way and other countries as a way to justify violence horrific horrific violence against them um, and also to you know encourage their own population that was not being targeted from be believing anything that the foreign press was saying or reporting about what was happening in their country so um, it has been very effectively used um, as a as a term to um, you know by world leaders throughout history to target press freedoms and just to cast some doubt and to create confusion and to make people uncertain of kind of what's going on is a really powerful tactic. You actually have a quote in here from one of the uh, executives at a cigarette company in 1968 saying, the most important type of story is that which casts doubt in the cause and effect theory of disease and smoking. Eye-grabbing headlines should strongly call out the point, controversy, contradiction, other factors, unknowns. So this is the chapter that I wrote on what's called big tobacco. So um, the large tobacco corporations um, throughout the 50s and later um, who sort of banded together to push back against scientific, you know, the scientific evidence showing that, that smoking does lead to cancer and other serious health conditions. So they essentially banded together to push out this, um, this information campaign to try to cast doubt on the medical findings, the very clear evidence that smoking leads to cancer. And right. they did this whole marketing campaign for, for decades. You know, their ultimate goal was to keep people smoking, to keep getting more and more people smoking, but it wasn't necessarily to prove the evidence as wrong. Exactly. It was just, it was mostly to cast doubt and therefore- just Confusion. Confusion, yeah. exactly. So. Um, because ultimately, you, you don't necessarily need to convince people um, of your side of things. You just need to make it so that they don't trust the evidence that's coming out. And therefore, in their minds, those people would continue to smoke. So that's a lot of what we see today, too, particularly on issue, issues related to health and science is they're not necessarily looking to convince you 100% to change your opinion, but just really to, to mm. not trust the sources, you know, the accurate sources of information create enough confusion yeah. that that you feel like you can't trust otherwise like very trustworthy organization. Right, right. To make the consensus seem like less of a consensus mm -hmm. and a lot more of like, well, there's a lot of different voices mm -hmm. all and Up a lot of opinion. people think different things. Yeah, go with yeah, your, your exactly. gut, you know. <laughs> some people believe this, some people believe that. Yeah, exactly, you know? what can you do? <laughs> Yeah, this is interesting. You talk about a study, a 2018 MIT study about the biggest news stories in English that were shared on Twitter between 2006 and 2017. And these researchers look at 126,000 stories shared by millions of users, and they found that fake news and rumors overwhelmingly reached more people and spread six times faster than true stories. Fake political news, more than any other category of false information on social media, reached more people faster and went deeper into their personal networks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, wow. That's, <laughs> that's what the truth is up against. The, the, the fake stuff seems way more viral. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and that's for, for a couple of key reasons that I think are really important to talk about, which is false information yeah. really thrives in environments of, of chaos, of high emotional tension, of political division and that sort of thing. Because, you know, I think, I think we're all feeling it right now. I think as a society, we're feeling very stressed. We've been living in a, in a global pandemic, which is, which is certainly something my generation has never experienced and the younger generations have never experienced. We have serious political division. We've had national unrest over police violence. It's just an incredibly tense time. And that is like the perfect scenario for people looking to spread false information because we're just all very emotional. And when we're feeling emotional about content, we're less likely to think critically about it. We're more likely to trust our opinions, our guts, and that sort of emotional reaction. So if you see some very politically divisive content, that confirms your sort of pre-existing views of a situation, or you feel very, very strongly about that piece of political content, you're more likely to share it than you are to be like, okay, let me click on this link. Let me follow it. Let me see where this article leads. Let me investigate an article. Yep. Who's posting it? Where is it coming from? Is this a corporation? Is this a politician? Is it a news website? Can I trust them? Do they have things that I can you know, verify, research that I can do, that sort of thing? We're just more likely to share it. And I think like, I don't know about what your experience is like on social media, but you know, I spend a lot of, uh, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, which I probably need to cut back, but I always find that my little sort of like pithy, I don't know, humorous or um, just sort of like sarcastic, like those kinds of tweets, like those are the, those are the ones that I get tons of likes on, tons of retweets on. It's not the like mm. 25 tweet thread that I do on like the nuance and historical context of this particular topic, right? Like, right. like snappy soundbite. Yeah. I, I mean, when I do yeah. those, I, those, I always get retweets that are like, well, this was very long, but it's worth it. I promise. Mm. Like you can read to the end, but like, yep. it, you know, I get way more engagement from um, tweets that are, you know, sort of like Cindy's hot take of the day rather than like Cindy's well thought out, researched, analyzed, you know, thorough 25 point thread, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's really the issue. Right. We don't necessarily want to go wade through all of it. Um, we want to kind of just trust that you're the expert. And in... yeah, I, it does make me very nervous when I, when people respond like, Oh, I just like I always trust whatever you say. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> please no, don't. That's exactly the point. Don't do that. <laughs> so let's talk about that, right? Like, <laughs> I am not an expert yep. on everything. I try to weigh in on on things when it makes sense for me to weigh in on things. But you should absolutely not trust 100% of everything I say because I'm a human, right? I'm not an encyclopedia. Yeah. I try to be thoughtful, right? But like the vast majority of social media doesn't, and therefore, like independent research is still very important. This, yeah, you have a study in here actually confirming what you were just talking about. They gave people different statements and had people classify whether they were a fact or opinion. And uh, regardless of what political party participants belonged to, they were more likely to say a statement was a fact when it appealed to their political beliefs, more likely to classify it as an opinion when it was something they disagreed with. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I haven't done as much research into sort of how this varies across different countries in the world, but as Americans, 
we sure are very confident in ourselves. Um, yep. We tend to trust our gut as we've sort of talked about a couple of times now. We, you know, because of our own biases, um, things like cognitive dissonance um, and that sort of thing, like we are always interested in finding information that confirms what we already believe. And we make our beliefs around very little evidence. Um, we tend to make snap judgments. And as a result, like all of that plays into how we see what is, you know, what is fact versus what is opinion. And I think that study is a really great example of it's it's based on political issues, primarily things like, you know, stance on minimum wage and things like that. And when you believe that the minimum wage should be raised or it shouldn't be raised, and you say it sort of enough times to yourself and you hear it enough in your favorite sort of news broadcast that this is what needs to happen, you start to, your brain sort of starts to naturally look at that as it, it's fact. It's not opinion. Mm. It's not, you know. Minimum wage is too low. Yeah, that yeah is, exactly. That's incontrovertible. Exactly. Right? right. That's interesting. Yeah. So those things kind of shift and the more they get repeated, the more sort of they crystallize and solidify from opinions over to facts in your brain. Yeah. And, and, you know, the people who push out false information, whether it's for ideological reasons or it's financially motivated, they know that they know that repetition is a huge piece of this. Yep. I not only write about this stuff, but I actually work in my day job doing this, this kind of investigative work as well. So I spend a lot of my time hunting down networks of, of people, groups, companies, governments, that sort of thing, that they've created elaborate networks of social media accounts and social media groups and pages um, where they just spam content. They're just posting content all day long, the same kinds of narratives, the same sort of false claims all day long, because they know when it shows up in your social media feeds enough times, you start to think that it's true, right? Yeah. It starts to look familiar to your brain and you're like, oh, that must be true, right? So repetition is huge. You point out, actually, yeah, there's a meme, the famous meme after Melania Trump's speech that she gave, and everyone was saying, oh, hey, you copied this from Michelle Obama, and totally went viral, huge thing, and then actually just made up. She didn't actually even say that, And but you had a nice point. I thought that, well, it was really well accepted by people because it's something that they had heard before. She'd been accused of that before from something totally different, so that then just is maybe in the back of your mind or something. Um, And so then when you hear this story that, oh, yeah, she copied just word for word. Look at it's right there on the meme. She copied exactly what um, you you don't go and actually try and watch the whole speech and find wherever it is in the speech. She said that and confirm just. Yeah. And I've heard something about that before, too. She did that before to retweet, share, get a load of this, people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so much of the the campaigns that people um, wage to spread false information are, are also built besides sort of the emotional piece of it, the repetition piece of it. They're also built around leading with sort of a kernel of truth. So there was a kernel yeah. of truth in this, in this story and that um, there was a previous instance in which some language had been very, very similar um, in speeches. And so the next time that it was claimed that it had happened, people accepted it, right? Because there had been this kernel of truth in it previously. And our brains just aren't very good. And we usually don't, you know, because at the, you know, with the speed of, of which information travels, 
and the amount of content that we're seeing every day, like we just don't take the time, frankly, to sort out these. We don't have time. How long would it take to go watch their speeches? And as you pointed out, actually, it was impossible to even find when the meme was first posted, Melania's speech wasn't even available. If you wanted Mm -hmm. to go and fact check this and look and try and find where she said this quote and copied Michelle Obama's speech, you wouldn't even be able to because the White House hadn't even made her the tape from her speech available yet. So good luck trying to verify. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of another point that I raised throughout the book. You know, that's a good example. I also talk about it in um, a chapter that I have on Marie Antoinette in which, um, you know, sort of having what we call sort of an information vacuum plays a key key role in false information spreading. So like when there is an absence of information out there, then swoops in the purveyor of false information to say, well, here's what's happening or here's the information. And because there's no other information to compare it to, you go with the false story, right? So with Marie Antoinette, Mm -hmm. you know, royal court in France, right? Uh, in the lead up to the the French Revolution, it wasn't any of the the, the business of of its citizenry to you know hear about what was going on in the royal court, so they didn't share anything, right. or they shared very Close little. Doors. Yeah. So yeah, not your business so, exactly. Right. Like we're you know we are anointed by God, like be on your way. <laughs> sort of the belief. Right. Um, and so sure. there was a lot of room for for individuals looking to spread false stories about. Marie Antoinette and the rest of the court to to make things up because what else did people have to believe or to consult, right? And so as you point out, I mean, I thought this was so interesting. Um, This is making these pamphlets where they would take just basically one giant sheet of paper and print uh, so that then it could be folded up into, you know, 16 pages or something like that and be just easily duplicated you make thousands of them fold them up and just start passing them out and even though a lot of people at the time couldn't even read putting these things all around and out there there i guess were enough people that could read that um you know it made you curious what they said and you asked somebody to help you figure it out or um, yeah i mean literacy rates were were certainly growing at the time Um, But a lot still traveled via word of mouth as well, which sort of creates another opportunity for distortion. I always sort of talk about like the telephone game. And I think I need a chapter with the telephone game. It's something I played as a kid. You start with a a particular message and absolutely every single time, by the time you get to the end of the line, the last person has heard something very different from the first person. And that's certainly, you know, not even in the same ballpark, usually not at all. Um, And so, you know, Certainly back in in older generations, when things were traveling via word of mouth, this was a huge risk. But social media also acts like this in a lot of ways, too, because um, another thing I talk about is that the vast majority of Americans don't click on articles. They just read the headlines and share. Um, and so you get 56% or something. Yeah. There there was an actual study on that. There was a study on it. It's horrifying. I Um, can't believe that. Yeah. So more than half of the stuff you see in your newsfeed, whoever posted that, they didn't even read it. They just, um, said, oh yeah, it looks good. Yeah. And a headline is a very, very short summary of, of the sort of key thing that the article is trying to convey, but usually an article of course has much more nuance. And so you know, the vast majority of Americans just read the headline and then share. And then you add to it, like, you know, everybody's got to have a hot take, right? So like, I read the headline, let's say, I have a hot take on this issue, just strictly based off of the headline, then somebody retweets me, and they have a hot take on my hot take, which wasn't even based on the article, because I didn't read the article, right? Hypothetically, again, 
course I read the articles. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, um, right. Of course. But that's how you get very, very garbled messages on social media yeah, um, take right. off uh, and go viral. And they better. get snowball and just blow yes. out of proportion so quickly. We're here with CIA analyst Cindy L. Otis talking about how to teach your teenager to handle fake news. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. On certain topics, we have to have some red lines. Those biases that we talked about, the algorithms on social media and search engines, are literally set up to play into your biases. So the things that you're already actively looking for because you want to find information that confirms your beliefs, the algorithms are like, here you go. We think you believe this. Therefore, here is all the content that shows you you're correct. For young people in particular, we really tend to listen to the words of influencers. So I have a lovely large number of nieces and nephews who I adore. And they're really into Instagram influencers and YouTube influencers. I have a niece who watches hours and hours of um, YouTube gamers. And while they might know how to, you know, get you into the castle at level 10 of whatever game, you should not be listening to them for health advice, right? right? You shouldn't be listening to them for their commentary on geopolitical issues. They themselves, these influencers, have their own sort of area of expertise, if you want to call it that. And so... I do think there's there's a lot of risk in sort of looking towards what we often see as experts, but really they're more sort of celebrities. Yeah, it's easy to just kind of put people in that expert category in mm-hmm. your mind and just sort of see them as credible and believable when if you really stop to think about it. But do they really have expertise in this specific area or is there someone better that I could find um, to listen to about this thing? Exactly. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.